Today we'll be debating which album is better, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger or U2's Actung Baby. And we'll be discussing OCD or Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Actung, baby! Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, in honor of the 30th anniversary of the release of both albums, we'll be discussing which album is better, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger or U2's Actung Baby. And, based on a listener suggestion, we'll be discussing OCD or Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. But Ali, before we get started, what's going on? I feel old. 30 years, eh? I guess that makes sense. I guess that checks. I mean, and and I don't want to get into it too much, but we're spoiling it a bit. But those albums are so ahead of their time. It doesn't feel like it's been 30 years. Let's say it that way. Let's do that spin on it. But speaking of the uh, the ravages of time, I'll tell you an interesting story. I bought a uh, suit the other day. Not Well, my my cousin's (laughs) wedding is coming up, so I got it for that. But, you know, when you buy a suit off the rack, you need to get it tailored. Usually, you know, I get the pants hemmed and I need to get the uh, sleeves shortened a bit. So there's a good tailor in Ottawa. So I went to go see him and I go in and uh, as he's taking the measurements, he's like, when do you need this by? Is it a rush job? Is it a rush job? I said, no, 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 man. Like the wedding's in January. So total lots of time. And he said, yeah, I just, everybody's coming in. Uh, like the guy who was just in before you has an interview tomorrow that to fly out to Vancouver for an interview. And what happened was he tried on his suit the night before and he doesn't fit into it. <laughs> He's gotten too big. And I said, and, and everybody's, so it's a rush job for everybody. So he's like, you're one of the few non-rush jobs. And I'm like, oh, is that happening a lot with COVID? And he shows me this rack of suits, just pulls out this rack, like with like 10 or 15 suits. He's like, every single one of these people has to get their suits let out because of uh, so because of COVID. Two, two takeaways from that story. Number one, your incredible anal retentiveness when it comes to time. You're the one guy who like six weeks is six weeks enough. And number two, nature is healing. The world is fattening and uh, you know, people are having interviews and events and galas. And uh, it's a, that's that's a good little sign, which you wouldn't think like a tailor basically gave you a great indication that we're getting back on that horse and riding. I should knock on wood. I don't know. There could be a horrible outbreak tomorrow but uh, i feel like you know we're, we're getting back in there we're getting back into the swing of things Okay, Ali, so again, like we've been doing over the past few months, we're going to talk about two albums that were both released in 1991 and decide which are the ones we like better. The first one we're going to start off with is uh, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger. 
This was released in uh, the fall of 1991. It was the sequel or the follow-up, I should say, to Louder Than Love. You were a big Soundgarden fan back in the day. Sure was, bud. Feels weird to talk about Chris Cornell in the in the past. Uh, rest in peace, Chris Cornell died in 2017 or 2018, very unexpectedly. But yeah, no, he was. Um, you know, he wasn't on the level of when 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 Bowie or Prince died or or, or any of those you know, incredible legends. But I I did feel a sadness, like it was somebody who I knew because he was. Yeah, he was. He's a part of our our lives and our past for sure. This was kind of the peak of his songwriting. He wrote this album, and at the same time, he wrote Temple of the Dog. That album actually came out this year as well, if you can believe it, in 1991. And Temple of the Dog is a classic, and we may end up talking about that in a couple of weeks as well. And he also wrote a bunch of songs for the single soundtrack, which came out in uh, the summer of 1992. So maybe uh, next year we'll talk about the single soundtrack, because that is another very influential album of the 1990s. But getting back to Bad Motor Finger, it was the first album with a new bassist, Ben Shepard. And... It's it's interesting. The band chose to work with Terry Date again, who who did uh, Louder Than Love, and it's just a very interesting time that this album came out because it came out at the same time as Pearl Jam and the same time as uh, Nirvana's Nevermind, and of course Nevermind got all the attention, and then other bands were slowly starting to be discovered over the next probably year after they were released in the fall of 1991, and that's basically what happened with uh, with Soundgarden. After this album, they got um, more and more attention. They caught the eye of Guns N' Roses, who we talked about Guns N' Roses a few weeks ago. They got an opening spot on part of their tour, the Use Your Illusion tour, uh, where they were playing to 40,000, not seats, but but 40,000 people at a time. Fans? Is, is the word fans? Fans is an interesting for? way to put that. But in fact, they weren't fans because did you That's know what? That's so funny, man. That is crazy to me. I do. I mean, I just... I don't know, like retrospect, I guess maybe back then I would have been like, yeah, that's that's a mismatch. But as I look back at it now, you know, colored by the how much mashup of music I've heard together and how much I've, mm -hmm. you know, even how much different music I've accepted in my life as I can be a fan of this and a fan of this. How could you not like Saga? They were nicknamed Frown Garden. That's terrible. <laughs> By like the, a terrible uh, pun. That's a terrible yeah, pun. Yeah, yeah, terrible pun. And also a terrible thing to do to this uh, great young band. You know, like you're getting the you're getting the thumbs up by Guns N' Roses and then going out. And Chris Cornell said that going out in, in front of 40,000 people, 35 minutes every day. Most people had not heard our songs. They didn't care about our songs. It was this really weird feeling. You know, on the one hand, you got the one of the best bands in uh, a band that's selling out arenas has given you the A-OK, -okay, and then you're bombing in front of their audiences. That, that's got to have felt horrible. But they showed them. Well, you know, you raise an interesting point. I think people don't understand that music was kind of separated in its own categories at this time, right? You listen to heavy metal, you listen to alternative, and you hadn't had bands that came along or artists like Beck 
right? Who came around in the 1990s, who was fusing everything Never together. Never mind Beck. What about when Public Enemy and Anthrax right? came together exactly. and brought the noise? Exactly. What about you know, that? That is so for me a seminal moment in my life. That type of stuff had never happened before. Like, yeah, you can like these two types of music and they can merge together. In fact, Soundgarden, there's a really good oral history of Bad Motor Finger, which is in Spin Magazine from just last month. It's it's excellent. It's, it's a long read, but it's amazing if you love this band and you love this album. So I, I suggest people check that out. But what's interesting in that they talk about going on the tour with Lollapalooza. Some of the early lineups in the first two years of Lollapalooza were amazing, but that's where you had these bands. You had uh, rap artists, alternative artists coming together in one thing, and it was just accepted and everybody was enjoying it. So really uh, these guys, by I mean, everybody who was involved with Lollapalooza and uh, and Perry Farrell and everything going forward like that really kind of paved the way for people being able to say, yeah, no, I can like both these uh, types of music at the same time. Sure. And I, it's so weird, man. I, I guess the real problem in society are Guns N' Roses fans, if we break it down. I mean, is that what we're saying? You know, like when you can hear like Rage Against the Machine and Cypress Hill, like one after another and hanging out together or, or, or on concerts together, how can you not accept Soundgarden to open for Guns N' Roses. That's I, well, this obscene. is the thing. And when you listen to this album, one review at the time from Steve Huey of All Music said this album takes a quantum leap in focus and consistency, and it's kind of cerebral, arty music for a metal audience. And mm-hmm. you, when you listen to this album, you can hear clear metal influences throughout, but they add in so much extra weird stuff and interesting yeah. stuff. Uh, it really is a is a leap forward for them. Yeah, one of the most interesting quotes about this particular album and the creation of it was when Chris Cornell said many years later, a couple of decades later, he said, the challenge on that album was, how can I write a visceral, up-tempo, aggressive post-punk rock song with screechy vocals, but that's not a heavy metal song or a retro hard rock song. I mean, talk about putting an insane amount of pressure on yourself. And that that's why the making of this album, you know, they, they have chronicled it as uh, quite a, uh, quite an uphill climb. It was, it was fraught with a lot of challenges, but obviously worth the fight. And it was, it's interesting. Kim Thale, I don't know if I say his name properly. He's the guitarist for Soundgarden. By the way, it was amazing when I first saw him. I first saw him actually in, I think, probably the Rusty Cage video. And I'm like, wait, that guy's brown. A brown guy in a heavy metal band playing electric guitar. What Funny. What is going on? First of all, that was amazing. But their original bassist was a Japanese guy too. Yes. Like this band. True. I don't I want I don't want to spoil what my choice is for I, I don't want to over, you know, extend my love here before we've rated these these two albums on a desert island. But look, man, you you and I come from a thing where like Apu on The Simpsons was a big deal for us. He was mm-hmm. like representation. Mm-hmm. So imagine this metal band has like a Japanese bassist and a a, a, a brown Punjabi guitarist. It was it's something pretty cool. It was like really, really something and like eye opening. And I'm sure, you know, you could trace uh, thousands of musicians who then by seeing that and, and by feeling mm-hmm. like, oh, music is not just for white guys. It's not just for like the white right. rockers. Right. We can we all can carve out a place for ourselves. I mean, this is a very, very influential thing for a band to do without even trying. Like this is not like nobody was like, hey, guys, look at us. Look at how diverse never, we are. Never, never, yeah. never that. Right. Yeah, it was never. us as fans who had to be like, hold on. 
Tyle? I mean, I think that's a brown name. He definitely looks brown. We had to do the research, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be like, uh, yeah. So he he called this album the heavy metal white album. <laughs> like they, that's how that's how influential they thought it was going to be. You know, yeah. And it, it, it's great. There's, I mean, amazing songs on it. Outshined is probably my favorite song in the album. Oh yeah. They have some w- interesting things though. There's two songs which have saxophone on them, uh, which is. Super interesting. There's this one song, Searching With My Good Eye Clothes, which starts with like, you know, that speak and say toy that kids would have Mm -hmm. where you pull the cord and like a cow makes a noise and a chicken makes a noise. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's just, it's just crazy stuff. And the deeper you get into the album, the more like this this stuff kind of pops out at you. And and I think a lot of people, so it's ranked number two on Rolling Stone's 50 Greatest Grunge Albums list. I'm sure Nirvana's Nevermind was number one. Uh, but it's funny because commercially, their biggest hit album was Super Unknown, mainly because of Black Hole Sun, Fell on Black Days. Those were kind of their big, their big hits. But I think by then, you know, their sound, and then they eventually broke up and then got back together. I think their sound had kind of become a bit commercialized by then. This was them still just expanding their reach and expanding uh, what they could do uh, musically. Sure. So, yeah. So uh, I think we both agree that it is a great album, but uh, we are comparing two. So let's uh, let's move on to uh, Achtung, baby. Right, so this album, Achtung Baby, is the seventh album by U2. It was produced by Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, mixed by Flood. These are um, kind of the, the producers and, and sound engineers that really got the best albums out of out of U2. And, you know, U2 had an interesting couple of years before this, right? The Joshua Tree was their big album that broke them into the mainstream success. Probably their best album. If you say so. <laughs> Some people say that. I know. Uh, well, a lot of people say that. You, people you'll say that. you'll um, get my takes uh, on maybe on their whole albums uh, at the end of all this. And then they had Rattle and Hum. You remember they had the film Rattle and Hum. I remember uh, yep. people going to go see it. And everybody's like, yeah, we're going to go dance in the aisles. And we're going to go see Rattle and Hum. And it was, uh, and the album Rattle and Hum is okay. It uh, has some good songs on it, though it is kind of self-serving. And it was kind of them discovering America. And uh, there's a lot of backlash towards that. And I think they really had to come up with something groundbreaking in order to stay relevant this was the sink or swim moment for you two either they're going to come up with something amazing or they probably would have faded into irrelevance and uh, self-mockery so but it, i don't know if you there's a great there's a great documentary called from the sky down which was released on the 20th anniversary of of the release of of Actung Baby. And I don't know if you've seen this, but it goes into like the the trials and tribulations of making this album. Yeah, we were I was mentioning that, you know, it was an uphill battle for for Bad Motorfinger, but this this album much more so, so much so that there's a documentary about it that that in itself is is an indication. I think the band members were like all, you know, subject to different influences at the time and I, the drummer was feeling like so the edge, you know, if you know you two, you know the edge. He was like really getting into more electronic 
drumming. And I, I remember reading that, you know, the drummer was like, well, do you even need me around here? You know, it was like that kind of thing. People were not feeling valued. And I just can't imagine. I mean, I, I know when I've worked with one person, when two people like sort of write, write a script together and you're at odds with some ideas, there's a solution. Like you can come up with a solution because two people are able to compromise. When you have a band of four or five more people, producer, I don't know. I, I have a lot of respect for these bands that finally get it together and have a greater product at the end. But I, I know I wouldn't have the patience for any of this. Well, they used to write their songs all together. And then they were, as you're saying, they were kind of camps with Edge and Bono on one side and then Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton on the other side and with different viewpoints of how they wanted to make the album. So I don't know. It it sounds like there's a lot of tension. At one point, Adam Clayton, who's the bassist, was saying, you know, you tell me what you want me to play and I'll just play it. And if you want to play it yourself, go ahead. And he was like yelling. I wonder if the other band members went, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) And so they thought about breaking up at this this point. Well, I'll tell you, you just mentioned Mullen. And so I was reading this, that, you know, he was listening to classic rock, like Cream and Jimi Hendrix. And then, you know, the edge is listening to like Nine Inch Nails, the Young Gods. And then, of course, Einstein Zende Newbotten. We all know Einstein Zende Newbotten, right? Anyway, I don't, but they're apparently they're a band. They have a they have a big following. But the edge was obviously into huge industrial bands and much more electronic. So I, I don't know. I guess they were really able to the, the band all stayed together, but it feels like uh, <laughs> ripe for a huge breakup i think they did consider breaking up at that point too and so and the the kind of the the movie is quite good and the kind of the climax of the movie is them figuring out one and they basically the song just one. the song one sorry yes. uh from the from the not one yeah sorry the song one and I guess Edge was practicing some chord progressions and basically just during that time, he just kind of came up with these guitar progressions and they just improvised around it. Daniel Lenoir was like, yeah, you're onto something. Try that move forward. And they just kind of jammed together and came up with this song. And I guess the way U2 usually works, and they hadn't been doing this, which was one of the problems, is they often write the music first and then Bono puts the lyrics on top. Some other bands write like that. I've heard that R.E.M. does that and some other bands. But that's that they do the music first and then he'll put the lyrics on. And yeah. so he kind of came up with the lyrics to one as they were kind of just jamming there and that was the breakthrough because otherwise they were not they were heading in the wrong direction and and then they were able to kind of move forward from there yeah and actually you mentioned daniel lenoir in case people don't know asif is very big into knowing who produced albums who directed movies which i always thought was was great with you know for some people that's never a factor but daniel lenoir what makes it interesting is he was he was the classic rock guy, right? Peter Gabriel, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Robbie Robertson, like he, Willie Nelson. These are like acts that he produced albums for. So it, I don't know. It was very interesting that he would be doing an album that wound up sounding like Aktung Baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's quite a leap for him as well, right? Yeah. And so, well, let's get into that. Like, I mean, this album, the, so the first single was 
the first single was The Fly. And I think they picked that single for a reason because it was so out there and sounded so different than anything else you two had ever done. It's also Bono with this persona he created, The Fly, with the those glasses that he wore that looked like a bug <laughs> and, and leather jacket and stuff like that. That and, sounds like something you would do when you're high out of your brains. It doesn't sound like Bono. <laughs> it sounds like some dude going, look, bro, I'm a fly. I put on glasses. Look, I'm a fly. And then... Hey, he created a persona. It was called the fly. Like we're making it so serious when it's like really sounds like a couple of high buddies just goofing around with a pair of sunglasses. But yeah. Well, I guess, you know, when you're that rich, then suddenly it becomes like a new persona you take on when you're doing a tour. And of course, he did take that persona on tour. They did the Zoo TV tour and he had different personas when he was singing different songs. And that that tour was amazing. You know, they had multiple screens and, and uh, kind of like visual overload in that uh that tour so you know this album like i said the fly then one mysterious ways i mean there were several singles from this this album it really uh redefined u2 and it redefined music in the early 90s because it didn't sound like anything that people had heard about before as we mentioned it was taking all these influences that we had talked about before that edge and larry mullen jr and bono and adam clayton had and putting them all together and this sounds like nothing you two had ever made before. And in fact, so much so, this is not, this is like damning someone with faint praise, but I remember listening to an interview with Aerosmith and they had recorded an album around this time. And then Acton Baby came out and they threw that album in the garbage and re-recorded it. And they made the album Eat the Rich after that, which had like Living on the Edge, remember? And all their yeah. videos with like Alicia Silverstone and yeah, stuff yeah, like sure. that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's... <laughs> That's not that good of an album, so mm. I don't even want to think about what the old one yeah. was, which is yeah, no total kidding. garbage. But anyway, it definitely was it was influential in a lot of ways. I did like this album, and by the way, I know I was talking very, very highly about Soundgarden. I did like this album. You know why I liked it? Because uh, A, it wasn't the Joshua Tree. That's That was my favorite part about this album. The Joshua Tree was, hey, tell me if you can recognize this song, Asif, all right? With or without you, I still haven't found what I'm looking for where the streets have no name. What song is that? It's three okay. different songs that are all the same song. Oh, basically. boy. I, that, I hated the, it had like this whiny sort of like swaying. All you could do was sway. You couldn't dance. You couldn't bop your head. You just sway. I hated that album. So I was pretty excited for Actum Baby. Also because I started listening to you 2 when when war came out, that our introduction to U2 was, you know, it's it's unfortunately it's it's the it's the Pearl Jam thing. It's like one of the best. It's such a raw album, man. It's so raw and it's so and you know, and then to that point, later Bono was like, We we're not gonna play Sunday Bloody Sunday anymore. We're not gonna play New Year's Day. These were these were like rebel songs, right? That's how he starts. He goes, This is a rebel song. These were about something important to them and now it's become commercialized and all that but i remember that feeling from those songs without before i even knew what they were about they were incredible songs even two hearts beat as one on on war is amazing 40 is amazing so i was a big fan and then i was gonna about to not be a fan and then Octung baby brought me back by the way he does play those songs now in concert again though i think they took a hiatus they for came back years. oh they, it was a hiatus okay all right good to know so yeah no i mean fair enough fair enough so why don't we do this let's go through our desert island uh picks 
for these two albums. Yeah. Okay, you go ahead. You tell me what your feelings are on this. Well, uh, I think we're going to probably disagree on this, but uh, for me, it's uh, I mean, Bad Motor Finger is a great album. It's it's excellent. It's very progressive, very experimental. But for me, it's Act Tongue Baby, which is also progressive and experimental. Not only is this, I think, the best U2 album that they've had, it has some of my favorite songs ever, ever on this album. My two favorite songs are probably Ultraviolet, Light My Way, and the second last song, Acrobat. So, And I think, you know, U2 has um, probably... It, it's they've slowly become one of my favorite bands. They were never my favorite band back at this time, and slowly they have. The problem with U2 is they do things like you said, and you didn't like Joshua Tree, though most people say their best albums are Joshua Tree, Act Tongue Baby, and uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind. But the problem with them is they do things that annoy people so much, like Rattle and Hum annoy people so much. Also, do you remember when they just downloaded an album onto everybody's phones? It's hard to forget, Asif. That's a hard period to forget. It was unbelievable how many times that would just start playing on my phone. I hated that band for a while there, yeah. So yeah. they do stuff like that. They've had some pretty uh, bad albums, like No Line on the Horizon, I think is just garbage. And and the, the one that you mentioned, which is downloaded on their phones, no, Songs of Innocence, it's not a very good album. However, their last album, which was called Songs of Experience, so it was kind of like the follow-up to Songs of Innocence, is an excellent album. It's one of the best albums I've ever heard. And I think a lot of people wrote them off because – uh, of some of the bad will they have engendered over time. And I also got back into U2. I've mentioned this before in the podcast. There's another podcast called Are You Talking U2 to Me with Adam Scott and Scott Ackerman. Yeah. Which is hilarious. It's one of the funniest podcasts I've ever heard. And they went through all of U2's discography. So, But for me, this album is just about a perfect album. There's no bad songs. It's without a doubt Act Tongue Baby for me. That's great. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you yourself were at the time listening to industrial bands like Einstrunzende Neubotten. I had to get that in. Dude, no, but uh, listen, I didn't listen to them, but Nine Inch Nails, Nine Inch Nails was a huge, huge, huge. Nine Inch Nails was a huge inspiration to The Edge. And I loved Pretty Hate Machine is such a good album. You want to talk about something that's ahead of its time. By the way, I think it was released in 1990. So. We couldn't include it in the 1991 albums, but that album is so ahead of its time. Like I, you listen to it now, it's a, like an album that could have come out uh, this year. And that actually, you know, to, just to sum up, I think Act on Baby and Bad Motor Finger, if they came out now, there, there's no dating them. There's nothing that sounds bad. They could easily come out now and be huge hits now. That's how, that's how progressive they were. All right. I do disagree as... You suggested I might. And I disagree for basically the reasons I stay, you know, you can't extract the fact that this band was, um, I, I know they're the, the, the Japanese um, bassist left early on, but he left an impact. He actually left a void for the band. It was very difficult for them to finally find Ben Shepard. He joined the group in 1990. So if we're talking about this band, we're not talking about Louder Than Love. We are talking about this particular album, Bad Motorfinger. Fine, that, that doesn't, but, but, the band as a whole was so unbelievably cool. And unlike you two who went from raw visceral music in war 
And then got kind of like, you know, I just felt like I don't know if I can trust this band after Rattle and Hum. And I don't, Actung Baby was a good album. And if it's on the desert island, we're listening to it. We're listening to it. For, but, but as far as my enjoyment goes, as far as like I'm taking my shirt off and rolling around in the sand, it's going to be to Bad Motorfinger. I love this band. I love their creativity. Dude, you said it yourself. This guy. His greatest year, despite all the good things that happened afterwards, this is Chris Cornell's you know, most prol- prolific time in his career. He was writing for Temple of the Dog and this and this and like what a and he wrote songs for that single soundtrack. I mean, he was a machine. He was a machine and you could feel it like this is a guy at the just the top of his career maximizing his potential. I don't know. There's something about Chris Cornell also that I'll always love more than anything about Bono. And and I still I don't I don't disrespect Bono, but as you said, there's some weird things that it's hard to extract. But but Chris Cornell epitomized cool. This band was the coolest, and the sound on this album was really like you listen to the song once and you're like, oh, that's not even close to enough times. I gotta listen to that song over and over again. And I felt that with almost everything on the album. So it has to be bad motor finger for me. That's my desert island pick. Okay, so disagree. Like people always say, we don't disagree enough. We definitely disagree on this. Though, of course, we like both albums. But we're curious to see what people think. So let us know. uh, Twitter, email, Instagram. Let us know what you think. Uh, Which album do you prefer out of these two? And let us know why it's Bad Motorfinger. No. (laughs) More disagreement right till the end. All right, Asif, I know we got this suggestion from a listener, and we should should credit this listener as well. What is their name? This listener messaged us on Facebook and Instagram. Their name, well, is 8141BW. Thank you, robot person. Okay, I I was hoping to say thanks, John. But anyway, I I do appreciate it, but I will tell 8535B73 that I – I was, I would definitely be coming to this. We were definitely going to talk about this. And I will say that because I know people very close to me who have OCD. It meant certain things and each person's OCD manifests it, itself a little bit differently. And then one of my friends, a very close friend, sent me an article. This was a few years ago about a goalie, an NHL goalie named Corey Hirsch. And I encourage you to look up Corey Hirsch, H-I-R-S-H. NHL goalie on the top of his game, his OCD was so debilitating and ruining his life to the point that there was some in in the article, there was a a comment he made where he said, I wanted to break my own hand, go play nets, pretend like I got injured when the puck hit my hand. And then I'd be able to leave the game because I was so trapped in my own mind and so a prisoner of my own thoughts. and, And I was like, well, wow, this is crazy. And my friend who sent me the article said, this is how I feel sometimes. And it floored me, man. It really, I was like, what? I thought this was about excessive hand washing. You know what I mean? Like that's when you don't know, you don't know. And I'm sure I'm going to talk to you about OCD and you're going to be like, actually the umbrella term is OCHD. Or something. I'm sure there's, it's not as simple at all as, as what I think. And therefore I think there's many other people out there who are like, 
not clear on what it is. So I think it's critical we talk about it. I think it's I, I really appreciate the suggestion. And as I say, it got us got us to this a little quicker than we may may have done it. But I, I'm still wrestling with that email I got from my friend years ago. So I wanted to know what what consists of OCD. It's it's it, like it, it, what we know from 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 popular culture is uh, you have to count things. There's the repetition. There's a, the repetition in the washing the hands. But what is it exactly? And yeah, let, let's start with that. Let's start with what is OCD. So OCD stands for, as you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's a good name, uh, unlike some things in medicine where you're like, well, what does that mean? Uh, herpes but- zoster being one of them. You idiots. That's Why shingles. are you obsessed about that? I'm oh. so angry that shingles or like this latent chicken pox should also be called herpes zoster when it has nothing to do with herpes. That is a huge well, oversight. It does have something to do with herpes because, where it's totally off track because okay. there's many types of herpes viruses. And no, but you know what? what? When somebody goes, they I have know. herpes, that's you, can't, because you can't get that you... person back in your life. If you go, wait, 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 I meant zoster. Too late, buddy. We're never hanging out. Okay. Anyway, okay. obsessive compulsive disorder has two components. So one is obsessions and then compulsions. So what happens with with people who have this is they have these obsessions and they keep thinking about these obsessions. Sometimes it's this fear of contamination and dirt, or but sometimes it's it's more deep than that. It's thinking about harming themselves, or often it's these very taboo thoughts. And sometimes people don't even want to talk about them. Uh, A lot of times, if you actually ask people what their obsession is, they want to talk about it. They may be very taboo, sometimes sexual or other kinds of obsessions. And they have these in their head and they can't get rid of these obsessional thoughts. Okay. So that, as you said, is it very much just obsession? It's not acting upon it. It just it, it is in your mind no. It and is. Torments you? It is. It is. I was about to get to that, and then you interjected. So, to, <laughs> so to get, so to overcome that obsession and to relieve that obsession, you have to do the compulsion, which is these repetitive movements, repetitive touching, counting, hand washing, needing to make sure doors are locked, right, or. Um, Sometimes it's like praying multiple times for people, you know, and, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, but I'm there's thinking some people- Muslims pray five times a day, <laughs> but, but am it, I OCD? But well, let's get into this because sometimes it's hard to know. Like, for example, people who make sure their doors are locked. Well, it's probably good to make sure your doors are locked before you go to bed at night. But if you have to check it five times, and I always tell people this when I see kids who may have OCD, I don't diagnose and treat OCD, but because we talked about tics and Tourette syndrome on a previous show, there's a correlation between these two. And in other words, a lot of people with tics and Tourette syndrome have OCD. So I do screen for it and I ask them questions. But the way I, I phrase it is, if I interrupt you and I say, tonight you can check the doors once and you cannot check them anymore. Are you okay with that? And if they say, yeah, that's fine. I don't need to check them more than once. Then they probably don't have OCD. But if but that would cause them a lot of stress. Have, that's only if they have that particular Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, right? exactly, okay, exactly. Okay. So usually I've already gone to this point where I, they tell I me see, they have to I check see. the doors. Okay. Yeah, uh, because it would be specific to every single person. Same thing with that touching, right? If you have to touch or count something three or four times or, or count, you know, all the odd numbers you can think of or prime numbers or something like that. I'm like, well, if I interrupt you and then say you can't keep doing that, 
how do you feel about that, right? Is it just a hobby or something they like to do or something, you know, like a habit? Or is it a compulsion? And people with OCD will say, no, I have to do it. Uh, I can't do it. And interestingly, by the way, kids often can't describe the obsession, I don't know, they can't or they won't, but you don't even, I don't even usually ask about obsessions for kids because they are often so young, they can't really verbalize them. So I just ask about the compulsions. Can I ask you this? When you see kids with, uh, you know, who nail bite or pick apart their hair or have those, uh, whatever you want to call them, habits, but parents might be like, this feels like a compulsion that my child has. Is that a... Uh, a, a flag at all? Or like, let's no, make sure they don't have AC. Not at all. Very good question. Again, we don't prepare I these questions. I love your surprise when you hear a good question. It, may, it reminds me of what a moron I am and must seem like. Everybody. It's because anyway, it means happy, every happy. single other question you ask yes, was not a good question. No, I'm just joking. So, right, those are separate, but you and you need to kind of tease those things out. In fact, when we talk about a diagnosis, we talk about what's on the differential diagnosis, right? What else could be going on? And what you're talking about, skin picking is its own uh, kind of psychiatric diagnosis, and trichotillomania is hair pulling, and that's its own kind of diagnosis as well. So those are separate. They're not lugged into OCD. You could say they're kind of manifestations of anxiety, but really it's probably best to push them into a different thing. Uh, same like OCD. I mean, there's an element of anxiety, but it's best to kind of separate it from anxiety. I started this by telling you that I know three people and I only know that because two have shared it with me and one, I've just seen it, but there must be, because it also lives in people's minds and you wouldn't always see their compulsions. They work hard to fight it as this goalie, uh, Corey Hirsch talks about, he was doing his best to make sure nobody else knew about it. How many people would you say, do we have a, a, an idea of how many, let's say, Canadians or people in North America are afflicted? Is afflicted even the right word? Or yeah, suffer from? Yeah, 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 suffer from, yeah, about 2.3% of all adults. So pretty common, right? When we were talking like uh, one in 50, you know, pretty yeah. common. Yeah. Oh, that's funny, man. When it's 2.3, I'm like, okay, so not that much. And then you go one in 50. I'm like, that's so much. It's the same math. And and it, it, it really starts young, which is why it's important for us in pediatrics to be aware of it. So the mean age, it kind of has two peaks, one at around age 10 or so. So remember, I'm seeing a lot of kids with tics and Tourette syndrome around 10. So then I often will see these patients at the same time because they may also have OCD. And then again at 19, 20, 21. So these peaks, but their peaks are in a very young adulthood uh, that you can have them. This is a weird question and I hope nobody finds it uh, too racially charged, but do we see like kids or, or people from different cultures or different countries having different tics or is it stuff you find somebody doing in, 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 you know, the center of Ottawa, it's the same thing they're doing in, let's say, uh, Johannesburg or in India? That's, it's, it's interesting. And again, let's just put the caveat on top. Remember, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't do research in psychiatry. But for my reading, there is sometimes some, some particular characteristics that you can see based on where people are from and uh, their gender as well. So religious obsessions are interestingly more common in Brazil and the Middle East than elsewhere. And I, I mean, you could probably, uh, I'm sure uh, an anthropologist could probably, or a sociologist could probably give you an idea of why that may be. But Two other things to mention about this. One is I mentioned gender. So women have more of this compulsive washing 
and men have more sexual obsessions or these magical numbers like you have to do something a certain number of times or what we call obsessional slowness where you have to do things slowly and take your time and if you don't yep start over that whole starting over thing is another kind of clue i find in 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 ocd where like no you interrupted my train of thought you interrupted my numbers you interrupted this i gotta start back at the beginning you can't just keep on going with your day okay so dude what do we know about athletes and and like high performing athletes sports and ocd because what you just said first of all you know, think about martial arts, think about basketball. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. It, you know, practice makes perfect. And the starting over thing, I know in basketball, it's like you start at the baseline, take a baseline shot, then you go, you know, it's called the, the around the world. Then you're at, you know, top of the court, then around, then around. And if you miss, you go back to the baseline where you started. It's like that thing is built in. Is it the same thing? Like, yeah, if that becomes obsessive or, or, or do we see OCD in athletes more than... I'm sure you do. Like, I, I honestly don't know in terms of which athletes have it and which athletes don't. There are certain things that are associated with sports. Like, you do this, you have to go back to the line, you have to do this. That's just the way things are. But if a coach halfway through is like, forget it, we're not doing that anymore, let's move on, that's fine. You know, it's the same thing. Like, I think you're getting at a very important distinction. So there's people who are obsessional personalities, okay? And we call that OCPD or obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And this is very different, though we kind of just lump them in with people who have OCD, but they're actually almost completely different. Certainly some athletes would have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. These are people who need to have things exact. They're perfectionists. They visualize things. This is the way it has to be done. No, this wasn't done. I got to redo it. Lots of people would like that. I'm sure you've had people, some craftsmen maybe work on your house and uh, if they're building something, they're exact. They measure it multiple times because they have to make sure things are perfect. Or you must know people who keep their house spot Not you or I, obviously, but there are people who keep their houses spotless. Their bathrooms are sparkling clean. Any dirt, anything, you know, they cover their couches, all, you know, everything is in its place. But the difference with those people, those types of athletes and those perfectionists, those craftsmen, the people who keep their house well, is if you ask them, you see, are you proud of the fact that you keep your house perfect? Are you proud? Like my my brother-in-law is a builds things and he will measure a hundred, you know, he'll measure it a million times just to make sure it's perfect. Because for him, is he has measure pride. Cut once, isn't that the saying? <laughs> that's right. He has pride in doing a good job because he's like, why would you why would you do a bad job? You have to make sure things look proper. And and so those people take pride in it. So if you say, oh, do you feel good about making sure your house is clean, you know, making sure you do all these things prior to um competing? Do you make sure that, you know, are you proud that you've measured this you know, so many times before you uh, start your project, they say, of course I am. Why would you not be like that? Why would you not make sure you're 100% perfect before doing it? And that's the difference. That's called being egosyntonic or egodystonic. If you're egodystonic, there's a, there's a, dis- there's a dissonance. There, people with OCD are upset that they have to do these compulsions. They don't feel good about it. Okay. It causes a lot of distress to them. Whereas people with OCPD, they're happy. They're proud of how they are. And they um, 
and they they think you should do that. Like, why wouldn't you keep your house clean? Why do you live like a pig? You so that's interesting. That. They have OCPD, which is the D stands for disorder, right? So they have a disorder, but they're proud of what they have. So how do you get them to seek treatment or change or do? I mean, that's a very interesting. How, how, how do how do these people get help? Do they even need help? So. Okay, well, let's separate the two things. So people with OCPD have what's called a personality disorder. And personality disorders, we could talk about perhaps another time. Um, that consists of things like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. We absolutely have to talk about those. Yes. Yeah. In okay. general, they're very difficult to treat. And there's also this movement, again, propagated on the internet and by some uh, specialists saying, you know, these aren't really a, a medical problem that needs to be solved. So maybe you don't have to do it. But for people with OCPD, really, it's like everything in life. If it interferes with your life, you know, if you spend your whole day scrubbing your house to make it look perfect and you have no time to go to work and no time to take care of your kids and cook and things like that, well, then maybe that is a problem. If not, then it's not a problem, right? And the same thing with OCD, right? If, you know, and that's one of the criteria for it, is if you have these obsessions and compulsions and they're interfering with your life, then you need to do something about it. And I see lots of kids who they have a tendency to do this, doesn't seem to be interfering with their life, they go to school, they have friends, whatever, then you may not have to do anything. You may just kind of observe. It's interesting because uh, OCD is one of those things, you know, people have over the last decade attached oholic to, uh, right, shopaholic and chocoholic and that kind of thing. But if it's not interfering with your life, you have to eat a piece of chocolate every day. It's not the end of the world. And I assume the same thing. I see people say that I'm a little OCD about this. I'm a little OCD about that, which I know on the one hand is diminishing what many people with OCD may be going through, but also you know, it's emphasis on the bit and the fact that they probably, it doesn't interfere with their life and they don't. Yeah. I I think they're probably using that incorrectly. What they mean is they're a bit OCPD about that. That's what they mean about that. When they're saying that they're a type A and they want to make sure everything's perfect for that, you know? Right. Okay. So that's fine. So yeah, I I mean, it's probably not that helpful to use that term, to be honest with you, because- No, I bet. The problem is you're confusing all these terms together, right? Someone who's type A, anal retentive versus OCPD. PD versus OCD, right? It's it's confusing it, I think, perhaps unnecessarily. So I guess we should ask what the causes are of OCD and if it's uh, you know genetic. And 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 I feel like generally OCD is, is is doesn't seem to be mentioned on its own. It's associated with you. You suggested this yourself with some other anxiety or other issues, and uh, sometimes you know drug use or whatever else it is. Yeah. So- well, I think it's more that it has what we call these comorbid psychiatric conditions, the things that can be associated with it. So anxiety disorders, mood disorders, impulse control disorders, and substance use, as you said, often seen. But uh, you can check for this by looking at people who have pure OCD, but there are some genetic factors. It's been reported that 45 to 65% of childhood onset OCD is hereditary. Oh, wow. Uh, That's huge. Yeah. And 27 to 47% uh, of adult or adolescent onset OCD is hereditary. This just means it happens to run in those families. We don't have a gene. There's nothing we can test for. And we know that, again, similar to tics and Tourette's syndrome, there's 
a problem with the connections between these basal parts of our brain called the basal ganglia and then the frontal parts of our brain, which control uh, inhibition and things like that. So there's connections between the inhibitory pathways and motor function that go back and forth. But that's all we really know about it. There's no test. There's no like MRI you can get for it. Uh, it's just based on the symptoms that you present with and diagnosed by your, by your doctor. So this is an interesting thing. I know a, a particular woman who has OCD and two out of her four kids also have or are OCD in a variety of different ways. And one of them being a good buddy of mine. And what about growing up in that environment? What about when it's genetic and it's right. sort of all you know as a child? Does that right. compound so, your, yeah. your- I mean, this is the whole nature versus nurture yeah. study. So the the only way that they end up knowing that is by those rare occasions where um, someone has OCD and then their child is adopted into a different family, right? And then those situations, they can assess this hereditability a bit more in those situations. But of course, when you're in the same family, it is hard and they're the same people who raise you, it becomes difficult to know, right? What's nature? What's nurture? All right. So what is the, uh, what's the solution? What are the treatments? Are there treatments? Yeah, there, there are treatment. And so it's important to probably treat it because studies show that 60 to 70% of cases are likely to persist if they're not treated effectively. So it's important to probably address it and not ignore the symptoms or at least monitor them over time. And sometimes I improvement can be noted if uh, you follow the, the steps in terms of treatment. And patients with a later age of onset, shorter duration of symptoms, and some insight that they actually have OCD, respond better to treatment and are more likely to remit. So the two options for treatment are basically a behavior therapy, which could be administered through a psychiatrist or psychologist. This is a type of what we call CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a specific subtype of that called exposure response uh, prevention. And you could do that. You can go on a medication. So the medications we use are SSRIs or these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things like Prozac, which we really use mainly for anxiety and depression, but they also right. work for OCD. Or you can use them together, right? You can, you can do behavior therapy plus uh, medication. But as you said, like in the brain, you don't know exactly what causes it. So therefore, there wouldn't be any medication that is directly helping OCD then, right? If we don't know what causes it yet, then there can't be an OCD medication, I imagine. I mean... I guess that's just in the way that you're thinking about it. Is there a medicine that we know through scientific trials works for OCD? Yes, it's the SSRIs. And there's other medications coming down the pipeline that have some evidence as well. But I mean, there is medication. Just because something works for anxiety doesn't mean it wouldn't work for OCD okay. because it's been okay. proven in trials to work for it. And it's not that you're just treating the anxiety, right? Because it also works in people who have pure OCD, not OCD comorbid with anxiety. So just, you know, same medications can work for different things. Okay. Okay. Take it easy. So two final points I want to mention. One is, is well, they're both actually kind of for doctors, but um, one is to know that people with OCD have a moderate to large increased risk for suicide. And in, in uh, one study, 54% reported a lifetime risk of suicidal ideation and without any attempts, so thoughts of self-harm. And 
20% reported equal to or greater than one suicide attempt. And again, it's higher amongst uh, women and those with comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. The reason I mention that is A, for parents to know that if their children have this, this is something to, to think about and, and seek treatment, but it's also for physicians. We have lots of physicians who listen to our podcast, and it's important to make sure you're screening for suicidal ideation in these patients with OCD. Yeah, that case that I mentioned off the top with that goalie, that's that was the most surprising part where he said, I feel like I got away with my own life just within an inch of my own life. I was, it was, it was really bad and it was almost, uh, it was almost over. And it was an eye opener for me to hear that something that we, the general Joe public who know nothing, uh, we consider OCD to be so sort of, you know, this pedestrian thing like, oh, and it's like this uh, thing worthy of some kind of jokes or mockery and division. People could be taking their own life because of it. It was exactly. a huge eye opener for me. I'm glad you mentioned You that. cannot discount the distress that people have with this. It eats away at them from the inside. And it's because of these obsessions that they can't get out of their head. And how do you relieve that, right? Again, you're just seeing the compulsions. You're just seeing what the, their actions that they're doing. But they're, they're sometimes, like I said, don't even want to talk about these obsessions in their head, which are so disturbing, they don't even want to talk about them. I'll mention one more thing before we go, and it's it's a bit of a quiz for you, Ali. You said you have a very good friend who's a dermatologist. I and stand by that. They, oh, he's still friends, good. And yeah. there's a recommendation that they do screening for OCD. Like I said, I do screening in my clinic. I just, I ask some questions to see if they have it. They recommend they do it in dermatology clinics. Why do you think that is, Ali? No, I got nothing. I absolutely have nothing. I want you to look at the camera right oh, now. Oh, Asif is, uh, he's Mr. Burnsing it right now. He's rubbing his hands together like he's hatching <laughs> an evil plan. Um, yeah, of course. you uh, A dermatologist would be able to see if a hand is just, you know, void of moisture because of, you know, weather or, or you know, just an absence of the occasional, uh, you know, whatever, you know, hand creams or whatever it is, or if they're just clearly a, a, an indication of excessive hand washing. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Raw, so, yeah. so just a word to our dermatology uh, colleagues, just it's recommended that they screen for it. So definitely if you or someone, you know, you think has, has OCD, definitely uh, see your doctor about it because there are effective treatments. It's sometimes resolves on its own only in about 20%. Other people will have it chronically. So it's definitely good to get it addressed because as we talked about the shorter duration of you having it, the um, easier it is to treat. All right, thanks, man. I'm happy we talked about that. I think one out of 50, looking at maybe, you know, a half dozen to a dozen of our listeners potentially, right? You just never know. So, yeah, or, or, or if not them, people they know at, at the very least. So worthwhile subject. Again, I don't remember <laughs> that email. Uh, 8141BW. Yes. Deeper uh, beep. Thanks so much for your uh, suggestion. And also both Actum Baby and Bad Motor Finger are worth a revisit. I think we established that today. Give us a... Uh, Give us a, a listen on, on any of our different formats. And when you're doing that, 
please don't forget to uh, to give us a good review. That's what that's what helps these algorithms and makes us sort of get on people's radar more. And that's that's the goal. And, and, and recommend us to a friend if you can. We appreciate all of you who listen. We appreciate when you come back with feedback. And we uh, we're excited to hear feedback about today's episode, too. And as you see, you know, tell us a show topic. We will endeavor to do it as soon as as soon as we can. We're always happy to uh, take suggestions. Again, drvcomedian at gmail.com, drvcomedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. But we have a little surprise for you at the end. Listen after our outro music for something that we, Ali and I, are obsessed with. See you next time. See ya! Welcome to Obsessed. We are obsessed with humans on the verge of change. I have a question for you. Are you exhausted with living a life less than what you have always dreamed of? Do you feel like you are that hamster on a wheel and you're not quite sure how to jump off or when to jump off? If you answered yes, then today is the day. Today is the day you are going to get obsessed. Get obsessed with your own life. Tia, Tristan, Mika, and I, Jules, are offering up a different kind of advice podcast. We offer up real ways to change your life. We are there for your questions when life gets unpredictable and doesn't it always seem unpredictable these days? We're a collective of four experts in the personal development field who are devoted to helping you live the life you are meant to be living. Consider us your personal development entourage all wrapped up into one life-changing experience. You'll have at your fingertips a therapist, a nutritionist, a coach, and a self-esteem expert. We will be going deep into the topics that we personally as women struggle with on a daily basis. We talk about careers, relationships, aging, body image, self-esteem, parenting, and so much more. And we give you the answers. We provide you with the blueprint to get you from here to there. We're not hype. We are real girls trying to figure it out just like you. So starting April 1st, your go-to girls will be dropping episodes weekly. So grab your pen and paper and get ready to sit at the feet of some life-altering conversations. The Obsessed Girls want to hear from you. After all, this podcast is all about you and for you. Subscribe to our podcast, leave your comments, but better yet, send us a note. Tell us what you need to know to be living your best life. We will answer all your questions personally. That's how much you mean to us. So right now, this very minute, start getting obsessed with your life.